All right, so my name is Paul Saldana, uh, and it's Friday, September the uh, 14th at 2.10. We're here at the MS, MS uh, Barrientos Mexican American Cultural Center, uh, and I'm interviewing former Mayor Gus Garcia. Uh, and so, Gus, do you give us permission to record this interview? Absolutely. Okay, good job. All right, well, let's start with some basic information, basic facts. Um, let's talk about uh, your full name, where you were born, and how you moved to Austin. Sure. What brought you to Austin? The, the full name is Gustavo, middle initial L, or Luis Garcia, G-U-S-T-A-V-O, L-U-I-S, G-A-R-C-I-A. I was born in a little community in South Texas, Zapata. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore because they tore it down to build a lake on the Rio Grande, so the people from the Rio Grande Valley would have water. Uh, the Bensons wanted to have water, so they built that lake you know, <laughs> uh, in 1934. And uh, we spent 10 years there uh, atten attending public schools there in Zapata. They were, the schools were unaccredited. You can, you know, that's wow. how bad education was in Texas back then. I went through the first six years of school. I did it in four years. Never had a teacher that went to college. I only had one teacher that graduated from high school. Wow. All the others had gone through the Saturday trade, went to a whole elementary school, didn't learn English at all. And we moved to Laredo because my dad was, was you know, angry at the way the schools were being run. I went to Laredo and they put me in public schools in Laredo and in junior high. And I was 10 years old, didn't know English, didn't, didn't know anything. I had a miserable junior high and high school career. And I graduated uh, at age barely 16. Uh, graduated in the lowest 5% of my class and uh, you know my family didn't think I was ever going to do anything so my sister who was the oldest in the family said you know he needs to get more education they sent me to Laredo Junior College it had opened about four years before I went out there I thought it was a lot of fun because they didn't check roles you know so uh, I, uh, I enrolled and uh, went one semester and got on scholastic probation, went another semester and, and flunked out. And my father said, you're never going to amount to anything, so go on and get to work. So I went to work for three years there in Laredo, clerk, bookkeeper, you know, typist, whatever. And uh, they were, they were uh, ending the, the, the GI Bill because the war in Korea was ending. So uh, I volunteered for the Army and went in the Army in 56, 54, and spent two years in the Army. And there I learned English. Uh, you know, I, I got into an outfit that had a bunch of people from the Northeast uh, that had gone to some of the premier colleges, you know, and they, they said, you know, you need to learn English, you know. So, you know, we, we, I spent some time. When I came out, I came back to, went back to Loretta Junior College, and then from there I moved, I moved to Austin. 1957, I came to Austin to attend the University of Texas and uh, spent, uh, a couple of years finishing up my degree and went to work for the Texas Education Agency and then went back to graduate school and uh, I wanted to pass my CPA exam, which I did. I passed my CPA exam in uh, 1962 and went to work in public accounting. Uh, I was determined to be a CPA in practice with a big firm and uh, I joined a, not a big, big firm, but a good-sized national firm. Spent four years there left and started my practice in 1965. Wow. I was the first Hispanic ever to have a practice as a CPA in Austin, Texas. And uh, 
after I spent uh, a few years there, I began to get involved in community work. Met a bunch of the guys who had been uh, involved in the war on poverty programs. Uh, Centro Barrientos, Mayor Potem Trevino, Commissioner Moya, Paul Tovar, you know, Ernie Nieto, all those guys. I met them all and, uh, uh, and met the people who were in, a, in an organization called the Human Opportunities Corporation. That organization handled the war on poverty mm. uh, funds for the, that, the Linden, that the Johnson administration had put in place. And uh, so I spent some time there and got involved. And uh, in 67, uh, the, the city had been responding to demands from the community to create a human relations commission. Mm -hmm. And so in 67, they named it, and they named 21 people. Uh, I think it was uh, 16 whites, four African-Americans, and one Hispanic. The Hispanic community got very upset about it, and uh, they went to City Hall, and they asked me to go with them. And uh, I didn't know what I didn't I didn't know what City Hall was, you know. I, I was a, I, I was a businessman, you know. So I went there to to, to witness the, the proceedings, and uh, lo and behold, they, Dick Nichols. Back then, didn't you know? Nowadays, you had to post everything on the agenda. Right. And, you know, had to do it 24 hours before and all that. Back then, they didn't have any of that stuff. They were at a meeting, you know, that had been called to, to listen to the complaints of the Hispanic community, Mexican-American community at that time. And uh, they had all these people testifying. And uh, uh, Dick Nichols, who was one of the council members, said, Mayor, I want to make a motion. They wasn't posted or anything. So the mayor was Harry Aiken, the guy who owned the, the uh, Nighthawk. So sure. He said, I'm going to move that we expand the size of the commission from 21 to 25, <laughs> and that the four additional members be all Mexican-Americans. So it passed. And so they, the room uh, where the, 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 the city council chambers were right there in, in, in that building at 8th in Colorado, the room was full with Hispanic, Mexican-Americans. But at that time, as things would happen, if you work for the state or you work for the federal government, you could not serve in a city mm. board of commission. Wow. So all the people who had been testifying to get it, you know, people on that commission, they, they didn't qualify. They were working for the post office, they were working for this guy. They were, and so they went through a whole room and found three that could, that could <laughs> serve. They needed one more. So Dick, Dick Nichols, Councilmember Nichols came up to me and he said, what about you? I said, well, I, I'm just here to listen. You know, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. You know, he said, uh, well, do you want to serve? I, said, I don't know. Is that something you want to do? Yes, we need one more. So I served in the Human Relations Commission from uh, 67 to 69. Wow. And uh, uh, we passed, during that time, we passed the Open Housing Ordinance. Uh, and uh, actually, it never, it never went into effect because the city... The, real, the, uh, the, uh, the Austin Real Estate Council or the, the, the Chamber of Commerce, one of those organizations, filed a citizen uh, petition to hold an election against that ordinance that had been passed by the council. Wow. And they reversed it. Wow. So here in Austin in 1969, they threw out the open housing ordinance by local vote. Wow. But by that time, the federal government had passed the open housing thing uh, law. And so, uh, you know, I... I, uh, uh, you know, 
was thrown out. We, we, I thought I was going to get reappointed to the. No, <laughs> I, I was one of those guys that, that, that they, all the people that appointed voted to appoint me were defeated in the 1969 election. Wow. Uh, Mayor Aiken, Councilmember Long, Emma Long, and Councilmember Nichols. Nichols. And the liberals were all gone and replaced with with conservatives. Wow. So that was your accidental entry into the whole politics. Accidental entry into the whole thing, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I had been bitten by the bug, you know, of, of, of doing some public service. So I kept, you know, you know, getting involved with some things. And uh, in 68, uh, before we went off the commission, uh, there was uh, a, an election for a school board seat. And Gilbert Martinez had... Uh, 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 file for it, and he asked me to, to work in his campaign, which I did. And Gilbert ran in a for a seat where there were four people running, and uh, so they went to the election, and nobody got fifty percent. Wow! Uh, and Gilbert came in second with thirty some odd percent, and we thought he was in the runoff. Lo and behold, we found out that at that time. The Austin School Board did not have runoffs. Whoever got the most votes won. Zen. Wow. So Gilbert didn't win. And so uh, we went back, and then in 1970, another a young lady ran for the school, another Mexican-American young lady, Edna Canino, but she didn't win. So in 72, they asked me to run, and I, I said, you know, I don't know what, I don't know how to do this. I've never, you know, we have never been involved in politics. My family didn't have, my dad hated American politics, and so he didn't want me involved in it. Well, they said, no, no, you have to do it. So I went ahead and filed, and at that time, the guy who was in that seat was supposed to leave. Well, the, they, they talked him into staying. And so before I knew it, I was running against a very powerful local guy, and uh, so uh, the, the first polls that came out, it was like 70 for him and 30 for me. But he had a, he had a daughter that was going to O'Henry, and uh, she was a cheerleader at <laughs> O'Henry. They found out that she had whiskey in her locker. <laughs> so the principal threw her out of the cheerleading squad. Uh-oh. And uh, the mother, the guy's wife, told him to go talk to the principal and demand that the daughter be put back. <laughs> well, he did. And that infuriated the teachers. So they called me in and they said, we're going to support you. What? For what? <laughs> and so I won that election in 72 and I got elected to the school board. And parallel to that, I remember there also being another community movement that we recently celebrated along with your 40th anniversary election to the, the school board being the first Mexican-American elected school board. I think there was a group of community leaders that put together a green book, and in that green book was a list of 17 demands that had to do with education. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, that was being done. Uh, okay. Okay, guys, so we were talking about your election school board. Uh, and didn't that also coincide with a, a community movement initiative? There was a, a local group that put together what was called the Green Book, and within that Green Book, there were a list of 17 demands related to education. Can you talk about that? Yeah, actually it started long before my, yeah, before my campaign started. Uh, they had gotten together, and I think, I think it was a, a kind of like a, a follow-up to the war on poverty, and some of those warriors that had, that had done a lot of work, decided to look at the community and ask the community what they wanted to do in education. So 
they did a very thorough and a complete job of analyzing what the community wanted. And so they started listing it, you know, all of them were policy issues, like we would like to have more Mexican-American teachers we, that speak Spanish, you know, all these other things, 17, list of 17, and they call it the list of 17 demands. Very well documented, very well done. So I looked at it and I said, this is my agenda. I'm going to be there six years. I just picked it up and I ran with it. And uh, it was made, made it very easy because when I got to the school board, I just said, there they are. This is the things that I, that I want to do. Uh, so, uh, and the community was behind it. And uh, people like Gabe Gutierrez and Phil Reyes and Ernie Pedra, Ernest, uh, 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 what's Ernest's last name? You know. Yes, I'm forgetting his name. It wasn't, I'm thinking Pedras, Perales. Perales, yeah. Perales, Perales. Ernest Perales, yeah. Those, are very, those guys are very instrumental in putting it all together. Bea Caballero. Yes. And so that became the, the agenda for me, you know, the, the policy issues that were going to be put on the table. Excellent. And so that was uh, 1972. We just recently celebrated the 40th anniversary, 40th anniversary. of the 17, list of 17 demands and your 40th anniversary of being the first Latino Mexican-American elected to the school board. Right around that time and even before that, there was also another uh, infamous uh, Chicano movement here, Chicano Huerta, the Mexican-American community movement was related to the, the economy furniture strike. Yeah. And, and then, you know, some believe that was a very pivotal point for Mexican-Americans here in Austin because that sort of led to the culmination and the, and the development of the infamous Brown Machine. Can you talk a little bit about yes, that? Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, the, uh, there had been quite a few uh, uh, problems at economy. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I was on the Human Relations Commission, they brought their complaints to the commission because the president of the Economy of Furniture was one of the members of the commission. And they asked us to kick him out of the commission, which we told them we didn't have any, any right to kick him off because we hadn't appointed him. Uh, and so uh, they kept going and, uh, you know, they brought a lot of things to us. And one of the things that they brought was the manner in which they, the, the economy furniture people handled the pension plan. And it, they said, you know, uh, we go over there and borrow money and they charge us very high interest and uh, we've, lost our, we've lost our pensions as a result of the manner in which they do it. So they complained about that. And I started asking them, you know, of some questions that had to do with the technical aspects. Uh, one of the guys said, well, where'd you learn that? I said, I'm a CPA. I know all this stuff, you know, and uh, they need to have vesting schedules in the plan. They didn't have vesting schedules. That meant somebody could work there 20 years and they, they didn't have any vested rights in, in the plan. So uh, that, that group then, you know, organized, and they even had Cesar Chavez here at the, at the, furniture, at the economic furniture strike. And it, it created this, uh, this group of people that their goal was to improve the situation, the, 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 the conditions of the Mexican-Americans. Very, very well organized group, you know, uh, and they, they worked and, and, and uh, basically formed the cadre that was used in all these elections uh, with the Green Book people, the economy furniture people, and all the others, you know. We, f we had the, 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 the wherewithal to be able to run an election effectively. And it's my understanding that that strike lasted almost four years, and exactly. I think it had a major impact on four or 500 people, uh, and to the point you were making, I remember reading and hearing stories from people like Lencho, uh, Hernandez, who was one of the organizers, that 
people had been there for like 15 years and were only making a dollar 12 or dollar 15. And then they didn't have a pension plan. They didn't have a pension plan. The owners of the Crown Furniture would hire, bring in the Anglo community, and the Mexican Americans had to train them. And then once they trained them, the Anglos ended up being the bosses for the yes. Mexican Americans. Yeah. That was one of the complaints that they brought to the Human Relations Commission. Wow. Yeah. So it was a it was a discriminatory practice that they had in that in that uh, in that enterprise, and that's what these people were, were talking about. They they brought the whole thing to the Human Relations Commission, and I had an opportunity to, to learn about it. So do you think that that was uh, 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 an opportunity for the Mexican American community to rally behind those issues and then to figure out a way to get involved in politics? Because again, 70, 71, 72, those were very pivotal years because we started having the first Mexican Americans elected to different uh, government. Oh, absolutely. There, there were several things that all came together. You know, the people that had worked on the Human Opportunities Corporation, Sergio Barrientos, Mecrotem, Treveño, Commissioner Moya, all those people had worked in, uh, as part of that team that, that handled the war on poverty. And then when they brought in the economy, it, it, they, 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 they coalesced and they, they created a, basically, quote unquote, a political machine. That's what it is. And that's what they call it the brown machine, <laughs> because the people that were in that machine, and I wasn't. I wasn't in that machine, so to speak, because I was, I never worked for the Human Opportunities Corporation. I didn't work at Economy Furniture, and I was that involved because I was, I was out there trying to run my business. But uh, Moya called me one day and he said, uh, uh, you, uh, you're going to be the education guy in the, in the bar machine. <laughs> and uh, actually the first article that was written, I don't know, I don't know if it was Daryl Slusher or somebody wrote an article in the bar machine. And the, they only had the Santa Barretos, Mayor Potentreño, and Commissioner Moya. They didn't have me on there wow. uh, at the outset. And uh, Moya added me at a later date. Uh, you were the Medawedo. You were the Medawedo. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about uh, when you decided to, uh, I mean, obviously, the, the 70s, uh, that was your, your, again, accidental interest in politics and your acclimation to local politics. Talk about um, the end of your tenure on the Austin Independent School District, what happened then, and then in between then, what made you lead to the decision to run for Austin City Council? Sure. Well, my, my term ended in 1978, and uh, uh, there were some people that had gotten an in, taken an interest in, in running. So my, Mr. Manuel Navarro, uh, who had been very active as a parent in the Becker area, mm -hmm. Becker Fulmore area, uh, decided he wanted to run. He ran and uh, served uh, on the school board for six years, and he was followed by Lydia Perez, uh, not the one from Las Manitas, but the other Lydia Perez. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Abel Ruiz came. There's been quite a few uh, Mexican-Americans, Hispanics, whatever they we're called, that have served on the school board. And uh, uh, I was out in 78, and I decided to run for the State Board of Education, which I did. I ran for the State Board of Education in 78 and lost. Uh, so uh, I, I told my wife, I said, you know, I guess I'm not cut out to be a politician, so I'm going to go back to practice my profession and leave politics alone, which I, went, I did. I went back in 78 and uh, dedicated my time to the, to the profession. But then in 1980, uh, we had created the Austin Community College when I was on the school board. Mm -hmm. There was a move foot to create a county-wide community college district mm -hmm. and elect a separate board because when I was on the school board, I was also on the board of the Austin Community College. The election was held to create a college district 
and a point of board. And uh, so I ran and, uh, and won, except that the proposition to create the college failed. So I was elected to a non-existing office. Wow. And uh, uh, Moore, uh, Ella, Delamay Moore Delamay. won. And, uh, uh, but we were all left out there by, with a victory and, and no place to go. <laughs> wow. And so I went back again to, to run uh, my business. And in 82, there was another opportunity to run for the, for the state board. And this time I ran against a very popular, very powerful uh, man, uh, man who had served with, I had served alongside him on the school board. And I run, we ran against each other and he, he, he beat me. I could win in Austin, but once I got, the, the district was much larger than Austin. Once I got out of Austin, you know, my name just didn't sell out there in those, you know, uh, rural counties. So I lost out there and so, I went back in, in, in 82 and, and started again creating, you know, building up my practice. And uh, in 88, uh, 1988, Mayor Pro Tem Trevino had announced that he probably would not run. So uh, they came to talk to me and I said, I have not prepared myself for this. You know, I'm not ready. Uh, well, but, he, you know, I said, I haven't heard that Mayor, Tre Mayor Pro Tem Trevino is not going to run. So actually, uh, Mayor Potemtrevino waited until about the last day uh, to file to announce that he wasn't going to run. So uh, somebody else ran, and uh, uh, two, one, one semi-Hispanic, I guess, he's now passed away, so I'm not going to mention his name. And, and Sam Guzman ran in that race in, in, in 88 for the school board. And uh, Sam lost in that race. and. Uh, uh, from 88 to 91, this other gentleman uh, served as, as, a, as a council member in place five. And uh, what happened was that he used some tactics to divide the community. Mm. You know, that he used the word, he's from Laredo, and Laredo they use the word clica to refer to cliques. Mm. Okay, you belong to this clica, you belong to that clica. I told him one day, I said, we don't, in Austin, we don't have that kind of situation. Right. You know, we have disagreements among each other, but we don't have cliques as such. I said, so get off of that stuff. You're not in Laredo anymore, right. and neither am I. So <laughs> uh, anyway, lo and behold, uh, the community got angry at him, and several of us got together and wrote a letter to the editor, the infamous letter to the editor. <laughs> and uh, the first letter that we sent out was so full of poison darts that the paper refused to print it. Wow. And they called us in and they said, we can, we can print something, but not this. Uh, so you need to write another one. So we wrote another one and they printed it. The, min, the, the morning that it appeared in the American Statesman, he called me. And he said, I didn't know you were part of that clique. I said, we're not talking about cliques. I said, the community is unhappy with the way you've divided us. We don't have that much in the way of differences, you know, in, in our community. We may have little disagreements, but those are not, those are not policy differences. Right. And you've, you put us in camps that we don't belong in. Right. And I said, that's something that is very destructive to, to, our, to our movement. And so I said, uh, we just decided to, to send a letter. Well, I'm very disappointed. Well, that's, you, can be, you can get disappointed all you want to, but that letter is now of, of record. And uh, 
And then uh, some people came to see me and said, well, you're going to run against them. I, said, oh, I wasn't even ready. And, uh, my firm was doing well. And, right. and so, uh, but, you know, they came and knocked on my door enough times to where I said, okay, uh, but I need to make sure that we can win. Right. Uh, well, as a, as a matter of fact, I filed in that place against him, and he pulled out. Wow. And ran for mayor against uh, uh, the, the Bruce Todd, Mayor Todd. And so the significance is that Place 5, for those who are not familiar with the history and how we elect our city council members here, Place 5 was a designated Latino seat, Mexican-American seat. Is that true? Right. That, that came about in the 1970 charter election that where the council who had all, all five council members elected at large mm -hmm. was expanded to seven with a provision that the mayor was going to be elected separately at large and then six council members were going to be all elected at large but place five was going to be for Hispanics and place six for African Americans. Well in 71 uh, the African Americans won their seat and they've held it ever since then. We didn't win that one. Uh, we had actually we had we had uh, Mexican-Americans running in two seats, and we lost them both. And it was not until 1975 that Mayor Pro Tem Trevino won the seat in place five. And, and so do you think part of the concern or argument was that um, when Mayor Pro Tem Trevino left, some people felt that we lost the Mexican-American seat, even though we're not going to name the individual who maybe was considered half, half Mexican-American, that maybe he wasn't Mexican-American and half or Latino? Well, he was a Sephardic Jew. Okay. okay. Spoke very good Spanish. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Hispanic community uh, started to realize that he was not uh, putting the policy issues in the right place to move us to improve our, our standard of living. That's what, that's, what they, that's what this whole thing was all about. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so he pulled out and put together a four-pack, I would call them, because there were, there were four people then running against me and another one, although I think there were six of us running, and uh, four of them were together. They had an understanding that whoever of those four got in the runoff with me, the other three would support them. And sure enough, uh, that happened. And uh, so I wound up running against one, and the other three were supporting this guy, the other, the other fellow. And so uh, it went. It was a. It was an exciting time that day, for a fact. <laughs> We had a heck of an election, turn, large turnout. Uh, and uh, I won with uh, 900 votes. Wow. I mean, I think it was like 50 50.8 <laughs> to 49.2. I mean, barely, by the skin of our teeth, we won that election. Uh, and I uh, started my service in 91 on the city council. And uh, uh, then in 94, I ran for re-election and ran unopposed. There's very few times that this had an election for city council, which is unopposed. I was unopposed in that wow. one. <laughs> well, then I remember 97, 97, 1997 was a pivotal year. I think that's when uh, council member Ronnie Reynolds was serving in place two yeah. and decided to run for mayor. And then a guy who has now become our senator named Kirk Watson decided to run for mayor at that time as sure. well too. Yeah. And then you made an, a significant or important decision to switch seats. Talk a little bit about well, that. Well, what happened was the Hispanic community had, was had been of the opinion that we needed to have more than one council member. That one was not enough. One out of seven was not enough. So uh, when uh, Councilmember Reynolds moved out of place two to run for mayor, I, I decided, I said, you know what? I, I called some of the leaders in the, in the Hispanic community. I said, you know what? You can have place five, okay? That's been designated the Hispanic seat. 
you can have it. I'm going to run in place too, not as a Hispanic. I'm going to run just as, as an Austinite. <laughs> and if I lose, I lose. Right. And it was a very, very hard-fought hard election because I, I ran against the woman that is now the, the, the director, <laughs> the CEO of LCRA. Yes. And she was supported by not only Tom Landry, who did, who did, and then Mr. Landry now passed away, he did commercials, television commercials for her, but also Coach Royal. Coach Royal, I got the reports that he had gotten together a bunch of guys and said, hey, we got this Mexican kid running against uh, this lady, wow. and you, you guys need to support her because we don't want him on the council. Right. So I was going up against all that, <laughs> and lo and behold, we won. But the sad part of that one was we won place two, but we lost place five. In the primary, uh, the, the Hispanic that ran came out on top. But after the primary, well, he didn't win. He, he got 40 some odd, so he was in a runoff. After he got that, that, that victory, he started opening up and t talking about all kinds of stuff that everybody said, who in the world is this guy? And so in the runoff, he lost. And he lost, and to, a lost, guy who, and he lost to a guy who's back on the city council. <laughs> yeah, that's right, holding that same seat, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Well, I remember 1997-98 was also another important year time because um, that's when I think we had put the uh, Mexican-American Cultural Center, the building that we're in now, uh, on the, on the uh, bond package. And yeah. I know that we had tried previous years. So I know we're going to go back a little bit, but talk uh, your first, your first uh, uh, remembering the whole discussion about building a Mexican-American Cultural Center when well, did that start, yeah. and then how, how were we able to get it right. successful I, in the bond package? I'll be quite frank with you. I was never that, that involved in the effort to put the, build the MAC because I was in, in education, and I was all doing all these other things. Affirmative action, when I got to the council, affirmative action was all very important. But uh, uh, one of the things that happened was they had dedicated this land by resolution as a site for the MAC. Okay. And that was, I think that was done during the time that Mayor Pro Temporino was on the, on the council. And uh, something happened along 1993 or 94, 95, somewhere in those years, to where the city wanted to take it back because this, this land was used by public works mm -hmm. to, as storage for, for uh, materials and mm -hmm. all, uh, you know, warehouse yeah. and so. There was, there was a discussion going on about the fact that they wanted to take it back and, and put it in public works and remove that resolution that had, uh, that had set it aside. And so I had appointed uh, uh, Kathy Vasquez to the Planning Commission, and she heard about it, and she called me and told me. And, and so I talked to some of the council members, and one of them told me, point blank, he said, a resolution is nothing more than an expression of intent. It doesn't mean that that land is reserved for the bank. The council just said, you know, if it's there, well, we can use it. But it's not anything. So I remember, I think I talked to you about it, and, and uh, we said, well, uh, why don't we make it an ordinance, okay? We're going to make it an ordinance saying the city hereby ordains that this land is going to be dedicated to the MAC. And we put it on the agenda. And it passed. It did. <laughs> and we added the words in perpetuity, I think, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
it was yeah. a good time. Uh, that ordinance was very well written, and it, it, it basically reserved this land forever for the MAC. And when and was the first time we had the, the MAC on the bond package? Was it the same year we did SOS? I think so. 92? Yeah, 92 or something 91, like that. I don't remember. No, it was not 92. It okay. was not after that. After that. But what they did in that election, which I did not particularly like, and I told them, I told the people that were putting the bond package together, they said the MAC and the Carver by themselves. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, people are going to go to, 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 to vote for it, and they're going to say, well, this doesn't affect me. I'm going to vote against it. Right. So it, it failed. It failed. And I think you were working in my office when it came back again, and we yes. said, no, it has to be part of a bigger package because yes. it's not, the MAC doesn't stand alone. It's, it, the idea behind the MAC is, was to bring the Hispanic community into the whole you know, area of, of interest in the, in, the, in, the, in the community of Austin. So they put it in a package together with other parks and, and recreation and I don't know, libraries, I don't remember what else was on that path. And then it passed. Oh, Absolutely. Was, uh, so then you served uh, your first time on council for three terms. Up until 2000? 2000 was my, yeah. And then you left and you took, uh, you took a sabbatical. <laughs> and then well, I, I remember retired. getting a call from you. But so, so what made you decide to run for mayor? Well, uh, in 1997, my name was being thrown around uh, to, to run for mayor. And so was uh, Cousin Reynolds and, uh, and uh, Mayor Watson. And uh, uh, Mayor Watson called me and, and wanted to have... Uh, a meeting with him for which we met, and he said, I need, I, I'm not going to run against you. Okay, if you run for mayor, I'm going to support you. Anyway. And I said, no, I said, I, have, I still have a lot of things to do that have, have to do specifically with, this, with the Latino community, with the Hispanic community. And as a mayor, you cannot dedicate yourself to that particular task without, you know, leaving other things out. So I said, no, I'm not going to run. Well, I'm going to run. But he said, if I run for mayor, I want you to run for uh, the city council. That's when I ran in place two and won. And so I served for three years uh, with Mayor Watson. And uh, uh, then I left in 2002. In 2000, I, I, I announced that I was retiring from, from uh, the world, you know. Uh, <laughs> I was going to go out and have a good time, you know. <laughs> That's where the rumors started you were moving back to Guerrero Viejo. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to go back to Saltillo or Guanajuato or someplace. As a matter of fact, it came out in the paper that I was leaving. Yes, right, right. I remember. Yeah. And so uh, I spent from, from June of 2000 to uh, September or June, July or something in, in 2001. And the rumor was that uh, Mayor Watson was, uh, was, uh, was going to run for Attorney General. And so I was getting calls you know, from people saying, you need to decide. I said, I can't decide to run for something when there is no vacancy. Correct. Well, Mayor Watson's going to say, I haven't heard from Mayor Watson. I haven't read anything about it. Why should I be making decisions that are going to affect him? I said, I don't want to do that. And so uh, um, one day, my, my wife's family had a, a death, and one of the tias uh, passed away in, in Del Rio. So we went to the funeral on the way over. Uh, my son Carlos who checks constantly checks the voicemail and all this. <laughs> you know, on the way over, said, uh, uh, "Dad, uh, Kirk Watson called and he needs to talk to you right away." I said, "Well, we're going to a funeral." So I called him anyway. He said, "When are you getting back?" I said, "After the funeral." You know. So we'll get back. 
get back, get back here as soon as possible because you need to run, because I'm running for attorney general. And Garner <laughs> Selby has found out that I am going to run and it's going gonna, it's gonna to announce it in, in the paper. Oh, wow. So uh, uh, Winter Funeral came back and filed. And, uh, and I thought we were going to get, you know, pretty stiff competitions. It turned out, except for the now uh, deceased uh, uh, Eric Mitchell, who did not want to run himself, but some people drafted, a, you know, drafted him and uh, got the signatures and got him on the, on the ballot. But then we had uh, Leslie and uh, the bread man and, uh, you know. I don't know if Jennifer Gale ran that year either. Huh? I don't know, remember if Jennifer Gale ran that year too. No, Jennifer Gale did not run. Leslie did. Leslie ran. Yeah. Okay. But anyway. So uh, then in 2001, you became the, the first. Elected. A first elected Latino or any mi minority mayor for the, yeah. in the history of Austin yes. in 2001. Yeah. 2001. Wow. 2000. You know, Austin professes to be very liberal and progressive and one of the things that continues to astonish a lot of people is the fact that we've only had one minority mayor elected in the history of Austin. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, the community attitudes about whether you're liberal or conservative basically don't have a, a clear definition of what that means. They're, they're liberal because they're environmentalists. They're liberal because here's the university. They're liberal, you know. But when it comes to relationships, with minorities, they're still very, very, uh, uh, you know, patron-oriented. Mm -hmm. You know, they are the ones who decide, you know. And they, they do it basically by controlling the flow of information. Uh, they, don't give, they don't give all the information to, to the Latinos or to the African Americans. They only, they spoon-feed them, right. they spoon-feed us. Right. So we have been left out. That's the reason. You know, I always wondered why the white mayors got so much information that I never got. Well, that's because that's the way they do it. Okay? It's, it's just a way of doing things. I mean, and they've done it forever. Uh, yeah. And what happened was that before, before the brown machine was created, they had the patron system, and they gave information to the chief patron of the Mexican-American community and the chief patron of the African-American community. But they were the only ones who had that information. And they used it. They became very powerful people as a result of, you know, one of the, 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 the Mexican-American patron had picked up the phone and, and called the mayor's office. I mean, he had direct access to the mayor. And that's how they, that's how they did it. They did it by, by naming who was going to be the boss, so to speak, of the minority communities. And, uh, uh, you know, that boss, those bosses in the Latino community used to meet at a coffee shop in East Austin. And uh, when the brown machine was created, the act of rebellion that, sig that, that signaled the creation of the new machine was that they went from that, from that coffee shop <laughs> to another coffee shop. That's it. And Joe's Bakery became the new. <laughs> But uh, that has been the place. And, you know, as time has gone by, and you've seen more sophistication among the Latino and, uh, and African-American populations, you have seen that that is shifting, okay? That is shifting. There's more inclusion. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's a different, it's a different, different and, and of course, there's one other, th there's one other thing that has, that has changed, and that is the population. Mm -hmm. You know, back then, when I got elected, we were 15% of the Austin population. Now we're, you know, our schools, 
When I went to the school board, 15% of the kids in school were, his, were, were Mexican Americans. Now, what is it, 60%? Over 60%. And yep. so, and there's all kinds, you know, Hispanics are now attorneys and doctors and this and bankers and everything, you know. So, uh, it's a different kind of, uh, you know, social uh, structure. And I think, I think more change is coming as, as you have more uh, Latinos getting a, a premier education. You know, we have, now we have, all of a sudden we see this guy who has a, who is the chancellor of the, of the University of Texas system, graduate of Yale, medical doctor, you know, whoa, right. where did this guy come from, you know? <laughs> well, the, the reality is that uh, is the, the well-to-do Hispanics who had always had a good place found out that if they became part of the movement, they would enjoy a lot of benefits. And that's what's happened. So. The reality is that that's what's happened. Right. They, have, they have used the, the, the vehicle that was created by, by, the, by the barrios. They, they've used that vehicle to move themselves up. That's right. What were, what were some of your um, uh, most favorite initiatives or projects that you worked on throughout your tenure in the city council? In the city council? Well, I think the, the affirmative action uh, was one of, you know, uh, the MWB ordinance that uh, allowed people to participate as providers of services and goods uh, that in the contracting arena uh, and, and allowed people to move up, you know, in, in, uh, into good jobs. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, uh, you were involved in some of those things. And, uh, you know, I had to, I guess, use this, use this interview to, to ask you for forgiveness for, for me sending you to do all the dirty stuff that you had to do. <laughs> and people, 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 people would, would complain. People would come in my office and say, do you know what your assistant is doing? <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure. I told him what to, to do it. You know. I remember he used to call me and say, Hito, close the door. So-and-so, the mayor called and was complaining about what you're doing. I said, well, I'm just doing what you just sent me to do. I remember those. What about, uh, I think another important initiative, one of my favorite projects I worked in your office was the, uh, the, uh, the uh, zoning and land use studies that we did in East Austin. Yeah. Do you remember a little bit about sure. that? Sure. Uh, the idea fundamentally was to, uh, d you know, organize the, the zoning uh, situation in such a way that it protected the, the, uh, the, the benefits that people had by holding certain. And we found out, for instance, that a lot of people were, had their homes in, in light industrial zoning. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to make sure that they were in the proper zoning so that, you know. And some, some, some people in the Latino community wanted to keep it light industrial because they said it's worth more. Mm -hmm. And what we wanted to do was to preserve the quality, the integrity of neighborhoods, and which we've lost now as a result of gentrification uh, because the land became very valuable. And so, there, the, the, the city is now, you know, the struggling. And of course, there's another thing that has happened in the Latino community. They don't live, we don't live in East Austin anymore, okay? Let's face it, we're everywhere. And uh, we know, we now have different, you know, different groups of, you know, socially and economically. Uh, we have had a lot of, an influx, heavy, strong influx of well-to-do Mexicans and Central Americans coming here and buying uh, land over there in the hills, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, I remember that. it's That's a different, it's a different population, different uh, demographic than the one that we saw in 1972 when I went to the school board. All right.
there anything else? Well, uh, the idea behind uh, the MAC, which we were talking, going to talk about, that uh, particular movement was started by some people that I don't even remember their names. Uh, they were very dedicated and uh, they worked very hard. Like I indicated earlier, I was not that involved in it. I, I heard about the idea and I liked it because it would be a place where the Hispanic community could come and feel at home and do the things that they wanted to do. This was their place, okay? And, and we always felt that that, what, that was one of the good things about that movement, about that movimiento, was that they would create this place that would be, would have the name Mexican-American on it. You mm -hmm. know, the, the African-Americans had the Carver Museum. And, the, and so uh, I think it, it created that place. It hasn't, it hasn't satisfied everybody, but let's face it, the Latino community is very diverse. Mm -hmm. You satisfy this one group and you, you, you know, anger another group. And so, you know, I've heard some people that say, ah, the Mac is not ours. Well, it's not yours if you're not there. And what I tell people is, go there, okay? Go to the MAC and you can figure, you can see what is there Correct. and see what you can do. See, the idea behind the MAC is that it provides a venue. We want to have a function that has to do with our con contributions to the well-being well of people in this city. We ought to do it here, here. And, and it's a nice place. It's right by the river. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not out there someplace in some junky place. No, it's right, right in the river, riverside, riverside. So, uh, you know, I think uh, the MAC, and I think the MAC is just in the early stages. I think as time goes by and people get more used to it, it will really do a lot of things. Like some of the things in San Antonio where they, the Latino community has been strong for much, much longer period. We're basically radically new when it comes to using uh, political power. 1970 was when it all started, you know, with, with the election of, of Commissioner Moya. Uh, so you're talking about, what, 40 years? Mm -hmm. 40 years. 40 years is not long <laughs> enough to be able to establish. And we have been basically uh, invaded, quote unquote, by all the people who have come here mm -hmm. because they like it here. Right. You know, they like it here. Let's face it, people that come from the South, they like it here. Hmm? I, like me, I, I, I wasn't born here. <laughs> You know, but I, when I came here, I liked it. And so I decided to stay here. I didn't like it at first because I thought that there was too much discrimination. And when people refused to rent me a home, I said, I told my wife, I said, what is going on? You know, why should I not be able to rent this house? Well, you know, they, would, they wouldn't tell me that they wouldn't rent it to, for, you know, to me because I was Hispanic or Mexican-American. They would just say, oh, we just, we just rented it yesterday. And then we checked the paper the next day and there it is listed Still again. again. So, you know, all those things are in the past. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I, you know, asked me, you know, what I'm most proud of, what I'm most proud of is what I did on the school board. Because on the school board, you know, when I, with, with that list of 17 items, we had 40 Hispanic, Latin, Mexican American teachers when I started. When I left, there were 600. Wow. Yeah. We had two principals, two administ school administrators, when I came to the board. Wow. I think we had 40 or 50 when I left. Wow. So it has changed the district, you know, tremendously. And, and you know, I hear about Mexican-American kids becoming valedictorians and, you know, graduating with honors and going on to, well, you have one that's, you know, two or three <laughs> that are going on to, to bigger, better things. Yes, sir. So uh, that is, I think, where we had the most impact. And 
working with uh, Commissioner Moya and Mayor Botem Trevino and, and Senator Barrientos. Back, back then, he was Representative Barrientos. Uh, I think we had an impact on, on uh, making it possible for Mexican-Americans to feel that they belong here. It's a matter of belonging in the whole community. And the MAC is, is part of it. Absolutely. Uh, and the stories that I've read, I remember uh, people like Velia Ruiz, Emma Barrientos, I think Marta Cotera, I think uh, some of the Mexican-American women organized probably in the mid-80s, 80, 40, 45. So here we are 25, 30 years later, and tomorrow we'll be celebrating the uh, Fiesta de Independencia, the Fiesta del Grito, here. And, yeah. and this was, I think, a good, this is a good example of what we had envisioned back sure. in the 80s and the, and the sure. mid-80s, early 90s. Sure, if we're going to have, we're going to celebrate the independence of our mother nation, the country. Uh, we ought to do it in, in, our, in our venue. Uh, so, yeah, it's, I think the people who had the idea and who pushed it, and you mentioned three or four of those uh, leaders, you didn't mention any men, you know, there were a bunch of other guys that were out there, yeah. used to, I heard that they used to get into fights and, you know, get all kinds of things. And, you know, and that's a struggle that, you know, goes, you know, always comes with, with efforts to change. It was, it was all an effort to change the things, the way things were being done here. Absolutely. And I think uh, if, if I look back and just sit back and look at it, I think it was very successful. What Senator Barrientos did at the, in the legislature, what uh, uh, Councilman Trevino did and Mayor Potem Trevino did at the council, uh, what uh, uh, Moya did at the commissioner's court, uh, what we did at the school board, had an effect on, on, the, on the people. And, you know, uh, I still find people who, who tell me that, that they, they, they like what happened. One of the guys, one of the men, and I'll mention his name because he did not passed away, Victor Ruiz, when I was on the school board, we decided one day that we were going to uh, broadcast the meetings on KUT. We didn't think anybody would listen to KUTs. I mean, Victor listened to them. And so one day he saw me somewhere and he said, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, when, now? Yeah, right now. Okay, what can I do for you, Victor? He said, uh, I've been listening to KUT, uh, those school board meetings, and you're saying things that I didn't know we were, we were allowed to say those things. Well, what is it that I'm saying? I don't know what you're, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you're saying that our children have the same right as the white kids to education, to quality education. I said, well, I thought you, that's what you sent me over there to do. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't think anybody would say it publicly. <laughs> I said, well, wow. this is a democracy, that's right. Victor. I mean, we have to put our issues on the table so that everybody hears it and hears it loud and clear that we're here asking that our children receive the same quality education or whatever education necessary for them to, to have success in this country. He said, well, I just didn't know that we were, so we were, we were allowed to say those things. And, and uh, we had, Victor and I had a real, not, yeah, Victor was one of the guys who was in the, in the economy furniture. Yeah, yeah. I remember. But they, you know, in those, in those days, they really struggled. Yeah. The, the Latino community really struggled, mostly because they didn't have any way to accessing elected officials other than through the patrones. Right. So what do you think now, fast forwarding 2012, what do you think are the biggest challenges for the Latino community moving forward? I think, I think we need to do what they did 40 years ago to stop 
and do an analysis of what the issues are that are affecting the community, and particularly with the economic pressures that exist today. A lot of our people are losing their jobs, you know, those kinds of things. You know, are they having, are they losing it because of discrimination or anything else? But we need to step back and take a look and, and line, you know, list the issues that are affecting it so that people who want to serve can take those issues and run with them. The second thing that needs to be done is people that are interested in serving need to understand that it comes at a cost, okay? You're not going to be able to become a rich person, okay? You're not going to be able to climb to be a vice president with a bank. They won't, they won't want you there because you're asking for things that, that the mainstream community doesn't want you to ask, okay? But it, that's the price that you have to pay. You know, I could have done a lot of other things if I had just not entered public, public office. But when we came to public office, and all of us, you know, you, if you look around, Moya didn't get rich, Johnny didn't get rich, you know, Johnny's still working, he's, uh, you know, 70 years old, he's still working, he told me he couldn't retire because he didn't have enough, and the senator is okay because the legislature, you know, has a pretty good retirement system, but he doesn't have a personal wealth. I mean, we never, none of us accumulated any personal wealth, because we didn't go there to accumulate personal wealth. Yeah. We went there to do what the community the job that the community wanted us to do. And I think that that is perhaps a little bit missing in the younger people. They don't have the same fire in the belly. They were not discriminated as much as some of us were. And so for them, it's, oh, well, I, you know, I, I graduated summa cum whatever, summa cum, you know, from the tacos, or I guess, whatever. Uh, yeah. And they don't have the same attitudes. I think we need to have people who say, we have this particular set of issues that need to be addressed, and we need to, we're the ones that need to do it. Well, that's why this interview is so important, because I think it's put it in historical perspective so those people, younger generation, can someday view this video and hear firsthand from you some of your challenges. One of my favorite stories that I uh, tell, and I told recently when we celebrated your 40th anniversary, and it's one of the favorite stories I remember of you, is uh, the day you got elected to school board and you called your father Tell that story one more time, real quick. We'll end well, that. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, we. My father had never never liked American politics. He said that nobody, nothing but crooks uh, ran for office in the United States, and the system was corrupt and blah 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 blah. I said, well, the system might be corrupt, but you don't have to be corrupt. I said, you can be a good politician. But he didn't believe me, and uh, uh, so I didn't I didn't call him to tell him I was running because I knew what he would say. What the heck are you doing, you know, running? So I waited until I won, and I called him, and uh, he was, up, you know, he was, he was 72, he was 81 years old, 81, 82 years old. And the first question that he asked is, uh, how much do they pay for this job? I said, no, Dad, this is a volunteer job uh, that, uh, you know, that, uh, that people do. They get elected and they serve on the, and how, much, uh, how many hours do you have to work? I said, we work about 25, 30 hours a week. What? And when do you work to make money to feed your family? I said, well, don't worry, Dad, we're doing, we're doing okay. No, 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 no. You can't tell me you're working 30 hours a day and then you're able to feed your family. Uh, so what, you won? Yes, I won. He said, you know what? Uh, you're more pendejo than I thought you were. <laughs> and hung up on me. <laughs> 
<laughs> and a few years later, you know, before he died, uh, one morning, uh, and Saturday morning, my, my wife and I were talking early in my house. I said, you know what? My father, by that time, my father was in a nursing home. And, uh, and so I told her, I said, I, you know, and we need to go see Dad because I haven't seen him in a while. So I went to see him, picked him up, and uh, my brother and I, my brother lived in Alice. My father was in a little nursing home in San Diego, about 10 miles away. So I went to pick him up, and he got in the car. And he never, he, my father never complimented, not, he thought my brother and I were about the most worthless people in the world, <laughs> right? And uh, never gave us a compliment. I don't ever remember receiving a compliment from my dad. So he got in the car, and uh, we noticed something was happening. And he told us, you know, he said, I've been thinking about it, and I think you guys have done okay. Wow. And, uh, and then he, he had real, you know, I have this stuff, short, stubby hands. My father had hands that were twice the size. And he pointed at me. He said, I was driving, and he was sitting in the, in the passenger side. He said, particularly you. He said, you never did what I told you to do. And, uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> he said, but you've done okay. Awesome. And uh, That's great. we came back Sunday. Monday had a stroke, and he never came back to Thank you, Gus. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, uh, I, uh, I enjoy doing these things because I think it, it speaks to what has happened in this community that I think is very healthy. And, uh, and, and it needs to be moved forward by, by the new generation of leaders. And uh, uh, we're hoping that uh, that happens. And, and I think the MAC can be instrumental in developing those leaders by you know, having them come here and enrich this. This center is not just to take, it's a center, center where you can come and give to the community. Absolutely. Well, since we're on tape and on record, I want to personally thank you for allowing me to work in you, for you in your office. That was uh, the best 10 years I had in my life, and uh, you continue to be one of my mentors. Were you there that long? Mentor, almost 10 years. Yeah, I had a lot of hair, and it was about 50 pounds lighter when I started working in your office. <laughs> but well, uh, by far a, has been the best job I ever had. Yeah, it ever. was, uh, it was uh, exciting times, and you were... You were one of the more gifted, well, the most gifted, if not the most gifted of all my administrative assistants. You became chief of staff. Sir. And uh, the, the only problem that I had was that the public sector found you. <laughs> <laughs> and well, you've, done, uh, you've done well. And, and I think you, you're just starting. I mean, you're going you're gonna to move on and, uh, and do good things and great things for this community. And uh, Thank you, sir. I appreciate everything you do and, and you continue to do. And good luck to you and your family. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you.